Right, we're back to uh, Jeremiah, a few um, weeks where things were happening, uh, Long Easter and Mother's Day. And uh, again, uh, the reason we've gone through the book of Jeremiah is uh, it's an inspired book of the Bible. The Holy Spirit has inspired the book of Jeremiah. And sometimes people think, what do you do with the Old Testament? How do you sort of work through that and apply that and think about that? And particularly a, a book, a prophetic book of Jeremiah. So we at Exchange love the Bible. We want to open that up and we want to take all aspects of the Bible and let it speak to us. So we want to get into parts of the Old Testament that maybe some people don't spend too much time in and think about that and then uh, see how Jesus has worked his way through that to become our risen king that we just sung about there. So that's the reason we come and we do a whole book preaching. We want to see uh, the context and see what God is telling us as we go through that book. So today we're in uh, Jeremiah 36 to 4, the other four chapters. Uh, firstly though, William Tyndale. Some of you might know that name as I say it. Uh, William Tyndale was born in the year 1494, so nobody's obviously met him because he was quite a few hundred years ago. Uh, born in the year 1494, he trained to be a minister of religion. Uh, in his studies of the Bible, he discovered the teaching or the doctrine of justification by faith alone and not by works. And when William Tyndale discovered what that meant, that he was declared right before God through the good news of what Jesus Christ had done, when William Tyndale discovered that, he came alive, as it were, and born again through the Scriptures. Uh, He then proceeded to do an illegal thing from that day onwards. He had a desire that God planted in his heart, and that was to translate the Bible into English so that the people of that day could read and discover the very same thing that William Tyndale had found in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It was illegal because the Bible was only meant to be in Latin and only the priests could read the Bible and not the the, uh, the common people of the day. He said, no, I want everybody to be able to read this. So he went ahead and did that. In 1535, uh, a few years later, the state-run church who were chasing him for quite a while, finally caught up with William Tyndale and arrested him for translating the Bible into English. In 1536, about nine months later, uh, William Tyndale was burned at the stake for his translation work of putting the Bible into the everyday language of English. His final words uh, before he was set alight at the stake was, Lord... Open up the King of England's eyes. And they were the final words that William Tyndale said. Uh, Just one year later, uh, the first authorised translations of the English Bible were printed. His words were answered. God's word is unstoppable. God's word is unstoppable. Let's pray now as we come to uh, Jeremiah 36 to 40. Uh, Father, we come before you today and just uh, are so glad and grateful that we can gather together as your people and we can come around this precious gift that you've given to us, this unstoppable word. Uh, Lord, today as we think about Jeremiah 36 to 40, we think about what King Jehoiakim did to cut your word up and to throw it into the bin, the fire pot as a word to do away with it, to stop your word, we discover your word is unstoppable. So I pray, Holy Spirit, just awaken our hearts today as we look at that. And I pray that that word will become unstoppable in our life for us to achieve everything you've destined us to achieve as your people for your glory. And Lord, we ask that now in your name, Jesus. Amen. 
Okay, so we are on the homeward stretch of uh, Jeremiah now. One thing that stands out for me in Jeremiah is, uh, is this, that he remains strong in God's power uh, right to the very end. His convictions in the gospel are unrelenting. This uh, character, Jeremiah, uh, is very, very convicted here by the truth of the gospel and he follows us through right through to the end. It's thought here that Jeremiah preached for perhaps over 40 years in incredibly tough and trying conditions. There appears to be very little success in his ministry as far as numbers are concerned. There's not great numbers flocking to hear Jeremiah at the temple or some other local meeting hall or wherever. Uh, It seems like, in many respects, he's a one-man band in in, uh, many ways. He's in a culture also that is fast leaving God out of the picture at that particular time. Yet Jeremiah is fully convinced in God and his word that he is who he is and that God will do what he said he'll do. Jeremiah hasn't wavered from the course despite this opposition. And the reason for that is this, that God chose him from the beginning and equipped him to be able to minister this word and just speak this word out to those people. God's purposes are unstoppable. He is sovereign and his plans will be worked out. And Jeremiah is happily fitting in to play his part here in that way. Jeremiah is a prophet. He's a spokesman for God in a way that God doesn't do that now. But he's divinely inspired Jeremiah to speak God's direct words to the people of that day. Jeremiah's task was simply to pass on God's word to the people of Judah. And today, here we sit, I stand, you sit, 3,000 years later... We're reading the very same things that Jeremiah spoke to the people back then. God's word, again, is unstoppable. God's word st- God stands behind his word and he will carry it out. So that's what we're going to go today as we think about Jeremiah and this unstoppable word. I think the scene is set really well for us here in chapter 36. And yes, Roger, well done. A lot of very difficult names there. You see big on genealogy. The son of, the son of, the son of. Uh, that was sort of giving authenticity to the characters in those, in those chapters there. Uh, God has directed Jeremiah to now record all the words he's been given onto a scroll. Now, that's not just the words of that chapter. If we think about that, God's actually said, all the words I've given you, right from the start of the ministry, put them all on a scroll. Write them all out. So basically, all of Jeremiah's ministry is written down there. And in time frames, if you sort of listen carefully through that passage... It's probably taken about a year for this to happen because it says in the fourth year that it gets to the fifth year later on. And then Jeremiah is to take this uh, scroll, not him, but Baruch, sorry, is going to take this scroll down to the temple and to have those words read out. Jeremiah's banned from the temple at that stage. So he says, Baruch, uh, you go and be my spokesman. Go there on a fasting day and read out God's word that he's given to us. Micaiah hears God's word and is absolutely captivated by it. You would have heard there was Roger's reading through it. He's there and he's intently listened to this whole thing. He takes it to some other guys to hear it and they react in reverence and fear towards God and his word. And they take it to King Jehoiakim thinking he's got to hear this as well. The king, though, is different to these other guys. He's got a hard heart and he rejects God's word. He cuts up the scroll and strips and throws it into a fire pot to get rid of God's word. That's reflective of what Satan and man have done down through the ages. It really is. It's just a picture of the rejection of God's word. 
both Satan and man, in man and our natural state, hate God's word and will do all they can to destroy it, to put it out. For Satan, he knows God's word is true. Satan knows his time is on a limit. He knows the Bible better than any other person. He knows it's true. Satan knows that the end game for him is to be cast into hell for eternity and to suffer the punishment for this rebellion forever and ever. Satan knows that. Mankind, in our natural state, wants to be their own king and not have anybody else rule over them. We want to be self-autonomous. Nobody tells me what to do. I set my own rules. I do my own thing. Nobody tells me what's right and wrong. I determine that myself. I am my own boss. So when the Bible comes along in that sense and reveals our failings, our faults, our flaws, and it upsets our party by showing us that our living is opposed to the God who gives us life and breath, we don't like the Bible. We reject it. We don't want to listen to it. In fact, we'll go so far as trying to destroy it and get rid of it. This is what King Jehoiakim's done here in Jeremiah. It's happening today. Today in North Korea, it's illegal to have in your possession a Bible. Illegal. To have a Bible there would mean immediate uh, imprisonment into a hard labour camp for many years, perhaps never to come out of that camp. If you go on the Open Doors website and look at some of this stuff there, many people die in those prisons in North Korea just for possessing a Bible. Why does North Korea do that? Because they don't want God's Word. Many other communist countries around the world, particularly in the decades gone by, have collected Bibles and burned them by the millions. Massive bonfires and incinerators have been there at public showing that we will stamp out God's Word. That's gone on over the decades. In Iran today, it's also illegal to have the Bible in the New Testament. You can have it in the Old Testament. You cannot have it in the New Testament. By having the New Testament in the Scriptures, the Bible, again, you risk long-term prison sentences in harshly persecuted prisons just for having in your possession the New Testament Scriptures. Iran doesn't want people to have access to the New Testament Bible because they think it's a filthy book and they don't want anybody to have access to the New Testament. They're trying to destroy the Bible and get rid of it. They want to stop God's Word. They're rejecting it. They don't want it. Well, God's Word's unstoppable. Here's what he says in Isaiah chapter 40. He says this in verses 6 to 8. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. No man can stop God's word. You do what you like in North Korea, you cannot stop God's word. Do what you like in Iran, you cannot stop God's word. It will stand forever. God's word is unstoppable. 
1979, when Iran was overrun by the Ayatollah Khomeini and the Islamic government came in to set up nearly like an Islamic state and the New Testament was banned, at that particular time they estimated in Iran to be around 500 Muslim background believers in 1979 when they come in to say, right, we are going to stop God's word. 40 years later, since that rule has been in place, uh, there's reliable estimated numbers from the Joshua Project that says in Iran today, there is 300,000 to 1 million Muslim background believers. And they tried to stop God's word. God's word is unstoppable. In fact, it's probably the fastest growing church in the world is Iran today. You don't hear much about that because they're still heavily persecuted. But that's the power of God's word that is unstoppable. This year, like last year and the year before and the year before that, there will be 100 million Bibles printed, distributed and sold around the world. Year upon year upon year upon year. Who knows how many electronic Bibles have been distributed, which can be freely downloaded and put onto smartphone devices and all number of things. It doesn't matter what man does to God's word. It's unstoppable. You cannot stop his word. God's word will be accomplished despite any attempt for man to stop it. Jeremiah 30, 16. God speaks. God, go and say to Ebed-Melech of the, of the Ethiopian, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will fulfil my words against this city for harm and not for good. They shall be accomplished before you on that day. God's word is overpowering. There's nothing that can stand and hold back God's word. How will we respond to God's word? How will we respond? Well, we actually saw two responses in that uh, chapter 36 there of that. There's a right response and there's a wrong response. Here's the wrong response from King Jehoiakim. It was in the ninth month, the 36th verse 22, and the king was sitting in the winter house and there was a fire burning in the fire pot before him. As Jehudi read three or four columns, the king would cut them off with a knife and throw them into the fire in the fire pot until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the fire pot. Yet, neither the king nor any of his servants who heard all these words was afraid, nor did they tear their garments. Even when El Nathan and Deliah and Gemariah urged the king not to burn the scroll, he would not listen to them. And the king commanded Jeremiah, the king's son, and Sarai, the son of Azrael, and Shelemiah, and the son of Abdil, to seize Baruch, the secretary, and Jeremiah, the prophet. But the Lord hid them. Can you get the picture of what's taking place here? Can you imagine in your mind's eye what's happening? The king wants nothing to do with God's word. Sitting in his chair beside the fire pot, someone's reading out the scroll. Arrogantly, stubbornly and foolishly, he takes his knife in an act of defiance and just cuts it up. Cuts it up. And then... As to show like total contempt for God, 
the king casually tosses these scraps of God's word, like used tissues, and throws them in the fire. A portion is read off, he cuts it off, he throws it into the fire. Some more is read, he cuts it off in front of all his royal staff and tosses it into the fire. That's insane, isn't it? That's insane. What absolute arrogance and stupidity that is. Who does the king think he is? This is God's word. He's filled with pride. He's filled with arrogance. He's filled with self-importance. His spiritual blindness has told him he doesn't need to listen to the sovereign creator of the universe, the one who gives him the ability to even cut or throw. He'll do things his own way, this king says, not God's way. This king is stubborn. The truth is staring him in the face. And he refuses to listen. Nobody tells him what to do. He's the king and not God. I can see this pouring out of this King Jehoiakim. Wrong response. Wrong response to God's word. I think in a sense everybody can relate to that in this idea of the truth is looking at him right in the face, but because he doesn't like it, he thinks he can just push it away. That somehow I can just make that truth go away, but it's always still there, isn't it? The truth doesn't go away. We just try to keep pushing it out of our mind, but the truth is still there. You can't just flick it away like that and think I'm done with it. That's a hard heart. That's a person with a sinful and broken heart. That's the blindness of sin that has blinded him from seeing the truth. That's a person who knows what the right thing is, but refuses to do it. And if someone carries on like that, that will eventually cost them their soul for eternity by refusing to do what they know what is right. That's the wrong response. That's the wrong response. Here's the right response, though. And we see it in the man, Micaiah, because he responded properly to God's word. In 36.11, we sort of told there that he listened to God's word. He took it all in and listened very intently. He took in the whole session, because when Baruch read that out, he's like reading all of Jeremiah. He's not reading one chapter, even though it took a while for Rods to get through that. Could have been two hours. Micaiah sits there and takes it all in. He's deeply moved by hearing God's word. He goes and tells some other people, you need to hear God's word. And then in verse 16, we see this response here of 36.16 to God's word. They said this, when they heard all the words, as Micaiah and these friends gathered together, they turned to one another in fear. And they said to Baruch, we must report all these words to the king. These guys have got the right response. These guys have sat and listened and heard. They've turned to one another in fear. And you might be saying, what's going on there? Well, they could sense that they were in trouble. Something was really wrong. And when the gospel is truly presented, one of the first things that must be shown to us is that we are in trouble to get an appreciation of what the gospel is all about. We have got a need. We have got a problem. 
that we can't fix. You see, when Peter delivered his first sermon after Pentecost and the people reacted as he spoke the word of God, the gospel at that time, it says there that they reacted by being cut to the heart. God's word had penetrated them deeply and they cried out, what must we do to be saved? The only way you cry out, what must I do to be saved, is you know you need to be saved from something. There is some sense that you are in trouble. They knew back then they were in trouble. They knew that they had rebelled against a good God and fallen short of his glory. They knew that they were in some way in a spot of bother. And it's no different here with Micaiah and his friends. They've just heard how God has spoken judgment and justice upon them for all of their willful rejection of God over that period of time. They knew they were in trouble. And the initial and the right response for hearing God's word will be conviction. Conviction. We will feel the conviction of God's word as it reveals our failings and our faults. God's word will convict us of our guilt and our shame before him as we hear that. And that's the right response initially to God's word. It does strip us there and reveal oftentimes what we don't want to see. Sometimes I think we get worried about this conviction of the Holy Spirit through God's word. Like somehow, if we sort of say the bad news, won't that sort of make them feel really bad and potentially drive them away? They don't want to actually go any further. We, we sort of feel this conviction maybe isn't the, the right approach and they won't come to God. But that's not true. That's not true. The conviction of the Holy Spirit through God's Word really is a gracious act of the Spirit. It really is. If we never perceived that there was a problem, we would never search for the answer, would we? If we just come to them and said, hey, I've got some news for you, and just gave them Jesus died for your sins, I'd say, well, what did he die for my sins for? Or if it's like if somebody never told me what the symptoms of cancer were, and I didn't know what it was, and I didn't go and seek a cure, I'd probably die a far earlier death. We need to hear what the bad news is first. And when we hear God's word, and it convicts us of our sin... It is a gracious work of God's Spirit coming to us and doing that. God's told you to hear, I'm bringing judgment upon you. You need to stop rebelling against me and return to me for restoration and forgiveness. You see, this is the purpose of God's Word for us as we read it. We're told back at the right at the very start of the reading, in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 36, write all these words in a scroll, put this all down, Make a record so that my word is very clear for them. They can't mistake it. And then what does God say in verse 3 in chapter 36? It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the disaster that 